Father, we pray today that your Spirit would draw us close to you, that you would open our eyes to what is true, that you would reveal your great love to us, that we would be recipients of your kindness, your grace, your compassion, but also your truth, Father. Those truth and loving kindness go together. Justice and mercy kissed each other at the cross. And Lord, we find today that we cannot have true love without having the truth, and we cannot have the truth without love. And so we pray today, Father, that your Spirit would awaken us to a deception we may even find ourselves in today, that we would be awakened to that true love that we find in the character and the heart of you and your Son and the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we ask today, Father, that you'd be with us and you draw us closer to heaven, closer to your heart, closer to your ideal for our lives. And this we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name, let God's people say, Amen. Amen. That scripture reading this morning, verse 6, this was the theme of our study yesterday. How many of you remember that? Verse 6, the Bible says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So when uh, the Apostle Paul says, as you have received Christ, he's speaking about that justifying experience, amen? The justification that takes place. And then he says, so walk in Him. Now he's talking about sanctification, amen? And he's speaking about that. And then he goes on and he says, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. So he's talking about that process of sanctification. Sanctification gives us roots in Christ, yes? It gives us a breadth and a depth that cannot be found any other way. Established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so we find today the beauty of the Christian experience, the beauty of the fullness of salvation through justification, sanctification, and then ultimately glorification, is that we, by faith in Christ, we put our faith first in Christ for justification. Amen? Then Paul says, in the same faith, you continue. So in the same faith, that same simple childlike faith, we walk in sanctification. And every day we put our faith in Jesus... Every day, more and more and more, we put our faith in Jesus until the day comes when by God's grace in Revelation 14, 12, we cannot just simply have faith in Jesus, but then we, must ha- we will develop the faith of Jesus. The actual faith, the depth of faith that Jesus had when he walked upon the earth, we can also possess as we surrender to him more and more. How many of you can say amen this morning? How many of you want to have not how many of you want to have faith in Jesus every day so deep that ultimately we develop the faith of Jesus? Yes? We have the faith of Christ. And that's our desire, that's our hope, that's our prayer. And Mrs. White says that that is indeed the third angel's message of Revelation 14. To have the faith of Christ and to have victory over the sins in our lives. How many of you can say amen? But Paul then goes on and he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. You realize, friends, that in that walk of Christ, in that receiving of Christ, there's going to be great deception that's going to seek to destroy us. How many of you have encountered that in your walk with Jesus? 
we walk with Jesus and then we find out, oh, it's actually not all roses and rose petals like I thought, but there's some thorns coming up in here, right? Empty deceit and philosophy. Do we have a lot of that going on in the world today? Is that beginning to happen in the church today? Yes, he says, beware of it. According to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How many of you are thankful today for the fullness of Godhead? You know, there's a lot of movement around the Michigan Conference and this anti-Trinitarian uh, business, and people are trying to say that the Holy Spirit is not part of the Godhead, that Jesus is, is, is not part of the Godhead. But the Bible says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That ought to be enough to satisfy us right there, amen? In Christ is the fullness of the Godhead, the Trinity, as we would say it. And uh, there's different names for it. But the Godhead, and you are complete in Him. So if we are complete in Christ, and in Christ dwells the fullness, fullness of the Godhead bodily, then in Christ we are complete in the Father, we are complete in the Son, and we are complete in the Holy Spirit. How many of you said amen this morning? Who is the head of all principality and power. Praise be to God. Now this morning we're going to hone in on verse, yesterday we honed in on verse 6 and 7. Today we're going to hone in on verse 8. And I want to just begin with a couple of stories. I can remember two times, many times, but two I'm going to tell you about in my life where I was really wrestling with certain temptations and certain actions and and you all know that we wrestle with there's no there's no need to hide it even God's people wrestle with temptation even Ellen White even Jesus of course wrestled with what temptation so we all wrestle with it we all kind of like to pretend like we don't but we do and I was wrestling with temptation and I can remember one particular time I was reaching a point where this thing was deceiving me in my mind and I was thinking that I was an o- on an okay track and a brother came to me and he spoke to me and somehow the Lord put it out upon his heart and he said, look, I've been in the situation that you're thinking about going. I'm in, I've been down the road, you're thinking about traveling. And he says, let me tell you, this is not a road that you want to travel. This is not a path you want to take. This is not a thing that you want to yield to. And let me tell you, friends, it shook me up. And then God started sending all these other people. And I was so thankful today, friends, that that brother had the courage to follow the impression to speak to me about that issue. And he spoke to me about it quite strongly. And I was so thankful for that because it kept me on a course that was right and true. You know, we need a people around us that have the courage. That's why we have a church. That's why we have a church family. A church family is not just something about being social and being happy with one another and eating each other's veggie burgers and veggie links and just watching each other go to destruction. But the Bible teaches all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, that we are accountable to one another. What do you think this morning, yes or no? Some people say, well, I don't have to answer to those people at the church. I don't answer to anyone but God. God has given his church the authority. He has given it the, the credibility. And he says that it is his, the apple of his eye. And he says that all through the New Testament, that it is the body which he has set in place in the, on the earth that represents his authority. And so, yes, according to Scripture, we are accountable to the church. 
whether you like to think of it or not. Yes, you are accountable to your brothers and sisters in Christ in that church. We answer to each other as a priesthood of believers. What do you think this morning? Yes, we are answerable to the pastor. Yes, because we are answerable to each other. We are answerable to the church. We are answerable to the pastor because we are all also answerable to God and those are his representation on the earth of himself. What do you think this morning? So don't think for just a minute that, oh, I answer to God and I don't need to answer to anyone else. If you think that, you've fallen into a, into a terrible deception. Now, the second story. That was one that where a brother came to me, it was very strong. The other one was very gentle. I remember that I was having a certain thought and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And the temptation was very overwhelming to do this thing. I won't even tell you what it is. You don't need to know. We all wrestle with things, right? And I was, about to, I was just about to yield to that thing. And my son was in the room. And he began to sing the song just out of the blue randomly. Just as like, I was like beginning to yield. And my son began to sing the song you sang today. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible, what friends? Tells me so. And friends, when I heard that wor those words over and over again, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, I began to, my eyes were just peeled back open, and I said, what? in the world am I doing? Because Jesus, what? Loves me. And it gave me the strength, though I was weak, He was strong. And I gained the victory that day. How many of you can say amen this morning? But friends, today we live in a society where people are develop, have developed this idea, even in the church, that what love means is that I accept a person in their sins. Now, let me ask you a question. Should I do that, yes or no? Does Jesus accept people in sin? What do you think? He says, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, right? He accepts people in sin. But today's philosophy, today's mindset, and even for some, I should say more than some, is that they, their theology has become that we accept them in their sins and we continue to put put our arms around them and pat them on the back and leave them in their sins. That love is tolerance of sin and love means that I have to agree with a person's lifestyle, I have to agree with their sin in order to fully and truly accept them and who they are because that sin or that behavior, they don't call it sin, they just call it choice, their lifestyle, is just who they are. Now, whether that be homosexuality, whether that be alcohol, whether that be some kind of other sexual sin, adultery, you know, today I see in the church people are divorcing and remarrying with no biblical grounds to do it whatsoever, and people are just accepting, just say, look, it just didn't work out for them. There's all kinds of things that we are accepting in the church today because we think, oh, we have to love this person, we have to accept this person, and we have to put our arms around them, and what we're really doing is putting our arms around their sin. 
and accepting sin right into the church. Now listen, friends, I'll be the first one to tell you we ought to love people. We ought to put our arms around them. We ought to embrace them because many times they've been led to a dark place. We ought to have compassion, you understand. But I would say this, that true love, true love will do all those things. We'll accept them no matter what they've done. We'll give our whole selves for them. But true love does not leave them in that sin. It must at some point, at the proper time, at the proper moment, and the proper, with a proper method, seek to turn them away from that sin and bring them out of that pit of despair. Because so many times people who are in these lifestyles and these other things, they think, to, they think that that's just who they are, but they are absolutely miserable and depressed. And, and it's not who they are. It is not who we are. Who we should be is exactly what God created us to be. Are you with me this morning? Not who we think we are, but who God created us to be. And friends, true love will turn people away from those things that are seeking to destroy them. But we have entered into an age of tolerance, so to speak. Tolerance where people say, you must tolerate, you must put up with all these different things. And if you do not do this, then you are not loving them. You don't, you don't care about them. Listen, friends, I can love a person and I can care about them and I can be self-sacrificing for that person and not have to agree with their lifestyle. Love does not mean I have to agree or accept any kind of behavior. Are you with me? I can love a person and I can utterly reject their behavior and their choices because God loves us, but he does not accept wrong choices. He rejects those things. Are you with me, friends? And this is the path that we're leading to. We've progressed in this thing so much. We've progressed in this thing so deeply that people are now beginning to think that God also accepts sin in its most vile form because he would love people too much to, to, to reject them or even to destroy them. I've heard these, these ideas creeping into the church by even well-known speakers today that God will not destroy. Let me tell you, you don't have to read very far in the Bible to know that God's going to destroy sin at the end of time. God's going to bring consequences to sin even today. Are you with me? He's going to do this. And to think that, that you know, these are the things, if you read in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, if you go back and read that book, you read about the days in the days before Noah, and you read the chapter about Sodom and Gomorrah, they were thinking and they were saying the exact same things that people are saying today. All just love people and tolerate them. Just take them in. It doesn't really matter what they're doing. It doesn't really matter what they believe, etc., etc. Just accept them as they are. God loves us too much to destroy us. He doesn't really care or mind how we live. God is love. God is tolerance, etc., etc. They were saying all the same things. That we are saying, it, it was shocking because I just have re been recently rereading the book Patriarchs and Prophets. It's been a number of years since I've read the book all the way through. And I was blown away at how in the last five years, the very things that they were saying is what we hear on the news today. It's what we read in the papers today. And God forbid it's even at times what we're hearing out of the pulpits today. And let me tell you what, friends. Think not that our generation is any better than theirs. God will take a vengeance upon sin. That's why he goes to such great lengths in love, patience, 
long-suffering to turn us away from it. If God could accept those behaviors and those choices, he would not have needed to send his son to the cross. If he could accept those things, he would not go to great lengths of suffering in his own personal heart. God, no one suffers more in the, in the cause of sin than God does himself. You don't suffer. You got, you got loneliness. Your husband, your wife left you. You got all these problems in your life. You got emotional baggage and you're suffering. And I'm sorry for that and I'm compassionate for that. But friends, you haven't suffered more than God has. And God cannot tolerate that. We better get to the sermon this morning. All right. Let's look this morning. I'm going to look at, we're going to look at two examples today and then compare it to our generation. The first one is Nadab and Abihu. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 10. What's interesting, friends, is you find this type of deception sprinkled throughout Scripture. Leviticus chapter 10 and verses 1 through 10. We could probably go home at this point, couldn't we? I already preached the sermon. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and on. I'm going to read this. If you're there, say amen. Love to hear those pages turning. And you know, that's, that's, that's one of the negative things about, I don't mind using the phone, but I don't always like to use it in church because I like to hear those pages turning, amen? Pages of life turning. Leviticus 10, verse 1, you there? Amen. Amen. Nadab, Nadab, and, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Does the Lord have a certain way in which he prescribes the worship of himself, yes or no? And if we do not do that, it is not good for us and it is not good for the people we infect, right? So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. My goodness! Somebody would say, that sounds terribly harsh. Seems like, man, if you just make one wrong move. You know, there's this idea that God kills people in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he's all love. You haven't read the story of Herod in the book of Acts, where it says that he was receiving the worship of the people, and he fell over dead. The angel struck him. You haven't read the stories of Ananias and Sapphira, where they fell dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. You haven't read Deuteronomy chapter 31 where God pours his heart. Deuteronomy chapter 30, I think it is. He pours his heart out to the people and he says, oh, that you would have hearts like me. I have loved you. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. There is no God of the, of the Old Testament that kills and a God of love in the New Testament, but there's a God of love, mercy, justice, and righteousness all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. He brings judgments and he gives compassion all through Scripture. Amen? No difference between the God of the old and the new. So some people say, well, this is harsh. But friends, what we often don't read in Scripture, what the Scripture doesn't always give the whole picture, is the long-suffering that God had borne with these two men who were wicked and corrupt of heart. The long-suffering he gave to them and the patience he endured trying to turn their hearts back to him but when we read this account, this was the last straw. This was after years, actually, of patient waiting, trying to turn them back. God endures great suffering so that we can be saved. Verse 3, And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord had said, By those who come near me, 
I must be regarded as what, friends? Holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And so God says to Aaron here, by all who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And today we want to talk about, always talk about the love of God, which we should, and we should never stop that. But today we rarely want to talk about the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the reverence which we, He is due when we come into His presence. And today, friends, we have sanctuaries and all kinds of things that don't give reverence to God. You understand? We, we have very little sacredness left in our society and in our culture. And that is going out the window. And God is saying, for those who come near me, yes, I am your friend. Yes, I, I love you. I am your Savior. But you must also recognize that I am the great and mighty God of the universe, the God of heaven and earth, the maker of all things. I am holy. And if unfallen angels kneel in reverence before Him and cover their faces with their wings, and reverence and awe of the Almighty, and they are sinless, then how much more ought a sinful human being bow sacredly and reverently before the God of heaven and earth? Yes, He is our friend, but He is not our buddy. He is our God. There's a difference. He is our God and our King, and He is the King of all things, of all creation. And we must regard him as holy. So Aaron held his peace. And the thing that you don't really see here in the passage is that naturally Aaron had just lost two sons. You can imagine the grief that was in his heart, yes? You can imagine the, 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 the horror of seeing his two sons devoured by fire from heaven. And he was about to speak in grief and Moses said, hold your peace. Why did he say that? Because God's uncompassionate? He wouldn't want his, the father to grieve for his sons? Absolutely not. But what is revealed is that it was Aaron who was responsible for the behavior of these boys. He was responsible in their upbringing and he, by his unwillingness to correct them in childhood, led them to the place where they were devoured by fire that day. Are you with me? Now notice this statement right here. Nadab, this is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 361. Nadab and Abihu had not in their youth been trained to habits of self-control. The father's yielding disposition, his lack of firmness for right, had led him to neglect the dis discipline of his children. His sons had been permitted to follow inclination, habits of self-indulgence, long cherished, obtain a hold upon them which even the responsibility of the most sacred office had not power to break. They had not been taught to respect the authority of their father. They did not realize the necessity of exact obedience to the requirements of God. Aaron's mistaken indulgence of his sons prepared them to become the subjects of divine judgments. And God bore patiently with this for decades, and still they did not turn. And even the sacred office of priest could not turn their hearts towards God. And God recognized that if He did not do something, that the people's understanding of His character would be, would be marred. 
And so God brought judgment after he did all he could do, after he waited patiently, after he lovingly probably convicted their hearts time and time again, after he convicted Aaron to speak to them as their father time and time again, he refused. God had to do something to preserve the sanctity of his, of his worship. But oh, how the long-suffering of God, amen? Notice this, Nadab and Abihu would have never committed that fatal sin had they not first become partially... Oh, wait a minute, let me back up here. I, I'm going to... What was, the, what, was the, what was the two problems? The two main problems was that they were, that they used the ordinary fire, yes? That when they should have used the sacred fire, they had not followed God's command. But why had they done that? If you go down to verse, um, let me see here, verse, uh, verse 9, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink what? Wine or intoxicating drink. You nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean, that you may teach the children of Israel what the Lord your God has taught them through the hand of Moses. And so what was the main problem between these two sons? What was their problem? They were drunk. They went into the house of God, not just to worship as a participant, but they went into the house of God to minister to the people, and they were drunk, intoxicated. And who does the priest represent in the heavenly sanctuary? It represents Christ. And God said, that is the last straw. I would not have the people of Israel thinking that my son, the Christ, the Savior, is a drunkard. And so he brought judgments. After he did all he could do, God was pinned up against a wall. There was nothing else he could do. And he brought judgment because he said, they will not defile my house. They were drunk in the house of the Lord. And dear friends, today, how many of us would never dare, never dare to go to the house of God Sabbath morning drunk? But we would stay out Friday night having our social drinks. We would go out Saturday night with the friends and get plastered. Then we think that we would be more holy than that. Let me, note, let me read to you this statement. Nadab and Abihu, was, it's three or four slides, so it's a little bit long. Nadab and Abihu would have never committed that fatal sin had they not first become partially intoxicated by the free use of wine. They understood that the most careful and solemn preparation was necessary before presenting themselves in the sanctuary where the divine presence was manifested. But by intemperance, they were disqualified for their holy office. Their minds became confused and their moral perceptions dulled so that they could not discern the difference between the sacred and the common. To Aaron and his surviving sons was given the warning, do not drink that wine, he said, lest you die, that it may be statutes, and you may determine the use of the clean and the unclean before the Lord. The use of spiritous liquors has the effect to weaken the body, confuse the mind, and debase the morals. It prevents men from realizing the sacredness of the holy things or the blinding force of God's or the binding force of God's requirements. All who occupied positions of sacred responsibility 
were to be men of strict temperance, that their minds might be clear to discriminate between right and wrong, that they may possess firmness of principle and wisdom to administer justice and to show mercy. And somebody might say, well, that's just for the priest. It doesn't really apply to me. But if you go to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, the Bible is very clear. Revelation chapter 1, it says in verse 5 that He, Christ, has washed us from our own sins and our, through with His own blood. And verse 6, He has made us kings and what? Priests before God His Father. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it applies to us too, doesn't it? Notice the statement continues. It says the same obligation rests upon every follower of Christ. The Apostle Peter declares, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We are required by God to preserve every power in the best condition, that we may render acceptable service to the Creator. When intoxicants are used, the same effects will follow as the case of those priests of Israel. The conscience will lose its sensibility to sin, and a process of hardening to iniquity will most certainly take place till the common and the most sacred will lose all difference of significance. How then can we meet the divine requirements of God? And he goes on, she goes on to quote that famous text, you are not your, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not what, friends? You are not your own, for you were bought with what? A price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. And listen, friends, does this apply to us today? What do you think? There are so many people I'm hearing about within the Adventist church saying, well, it doesn't really matter if I have a drink or two. It doesn't really matter what I eat. It doesn't really matter what I drink. If I drink a little beer here and there, you know, I've had a hard day's work. There's nothing wrong with kicking back and having an ice cold beer. If you want to dull your senses, if you want to not be able to discern what is holy and what is unholy, what is clean and unclean. If you want to impact who you are, then you just go ahead and have that beer today. But God would tell you today that even social drinking, even a casual drink, will impact your character, will change who you are, and it will lead you down a course that may lead to those two young men right there. Now on the flip side, let me just say this real quick, and uh, I, I, I'm almost nervous you may throw me out of here to say this, but on the flip side, it doesn't all only refer to alcohol, but we're also told about coffee. We're also told about other stimulating drinks, beverages, and things that are not God's ideal for His people. Now, are we being legalistic here? No. Absolutely. I, 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 it blows my mind how someone could think that refraining from that which God has told us not to partake of is somehow legalism. No, it's, it's, it's a depth of understanding that I am not my own. It's a depth of understanding that I was bought with the precious blood of Christ. It is blood dripped down his hands as the nails pierced his, his hands and, and, and the crown was upon his brow. His blood dripped down so that you could be bought back from the enemy and live according to his ideal for you, friends. It is not legalism. It is love. The love of Christ compels me to live as He has called me to live because of the high price that He paid for me. And if I do not understand that, then I will certainly despise it and call it legalism. But if I've understood, if I've been in the depths of sin and Christ has pulled me out, 
if I understand the deliverance he has made for me, the purchase he has made, the price he has paid, if I understand this, then I recognize that I must live according to his will because his will, his requirements are only there not to bind me, but to free me. They're for my happiness. Because somebody says, well, I can't be a, I can't be a Christian because it's too restrictive. I, I wouldn't want to be an Adventist because it's too restrictive. Well, let me tell you this. If you have a person that smokes and a person who chooses not to smoke, who has greater freedom? Somebody might say, well, me, because I'm choosing to smoke. Can the non-Christian who chooses not to smoke choose to smoke anytime he wants to? He can do that. Could I, as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, choose to go out and get drunk tonight, yes or no? Could I choose it? I could choose it. It wouldn't be right. It would be a sin, and I would rightfully be fired, praise God. Amen. But I could choose to do it. But the man who is addicted to cigarettes, who is addicted to liquor, does he have the freedom then not to choose? To choose not to do it. Does he have that freedom? No, because he is bound to that thing. So who has greater freedom, the Christian or the non-Christian? Praise God, the Christian. Amen? Jesus gives us freedom when we refrain from those things that would harm us. I'm ever thankful today for the freedom Christ offers us today. It's not bondage to obey God. It's a delight. Amen? It frees us from all kinds of problems that, trust me, you don't want to have. You ready to throw me out? Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's go on. Hophni and Phinehas, our second example. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. You're full of grace and truth today. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 12. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12. The Bible says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. This is Phinehas and Hophni. For they did not know the Lord. They did not what? They didn't know the Lord. And the, they didn't understand the price that was paid for them, did they? They didn't understand what Christ had, was going to do for them at that point in time. And the priest's custom with the people was that they would, when any man would offer a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come in with a three-pronged hook, flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron. And the flesh hook was, the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh all to Israel who came there. This was the Lord's statute. This was a, a requirement that this is how God provided for the priests. And he would, they would do this and, and the meat was boiled. And what would happen is these two young men who were corrupt would go in and do it differently. They would begin to tell the people something different than that which the Lord instructed. Now watch this. This is what happened, verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give me meat for what? Roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but what? But raw. You see, because they wanted to roast it because it tasted better and it met the, the indulgence of their flesh more than the boiling. You understand? And if the man should say to him, They should really burn the fat. First, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by what? I would take it by force. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, rather than what God's telling you, I'll just take it by force. Therefore, look at this, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. Now the scripture also tells us, we're not going to go there for sake of time, 
But Scripture also tells us that they were laying with the women at the gate. In other words, when the women would come to worship the Lord, they would pull them aside and try to sleep with them, just to be straightforward with you. And so they were committing all kinds of indulgence, uh, fornication, adultery, etc., and they were sleeping with the women, and they were violating the, the sacrifices that were to be offered with the Lord. And the Bible says in verse 17 that their sin became how great? Very great before the Lord. And I want you to notice the last part of that verse. And it says, for men did what? They abhorred the offering of the Lord. It got so bad, friends, that the people were actually not wanting to go to the house of God. They were not wanting to come and worship before the Lord. They actually abhorred taking the offering and their sacrifices to the house of God because of the wickedness and the corruption of these two men. How sad is that? How sad is that? That, that, that the people of God could not even come to the house of worship some of you think you complain because you got it bad because, oh, there's not very many people in my church and blah, blah, blah. We do this and that. And listen, friends, imagine being in those days where the priest was wicked before God. And where was God in the midst of all of it? Patiently watching in the shadows, waiting, convicting, trying to draw their hearts to him. But finally the day came when God had had enough. Notice this. And he brought judgment to these two men also. Listen to this quote, page 575. But although he had been appointed to govern the people, he did not rule his own household, speaking of Eli, their father. Eli was an indulgent father, loving peace and ease, and he did not exercise his authority to correct evil habits and passions of his children. Rather than contend with them or punish them, he would submit to their will and give them their own way. Instead of regarding the education of his sons as the most important of his responsibilities, he treated the matter with little consequence. The priest and the judge of Israel had not been left in darkness as to the duty of restraining and governing his children that God had given to his care. But Eli shrank from this duty because it involved crossing the will of his sons. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. We'll come back to this quote. Friends, today, if you think about in the Christian church, we look out and we see people that are on a path that's not right. We see people flirting with adultery. We see people flirting with substance abuse. We see people flirting with doing all these things. And what do we say to them most of the time? What do most people say to them? Nothing. Happy Sabbath, right? That's about it. And we think, oh, you know, that's the pastor's job to speak to those people, right, Pastor Mike? That's the pastor's job. So, so what do we do when we see somebody in an open sin in the church? We go over to the pastor and we say, Pastor, you know, so-and-so is, uh, is doing this. I think you should go talk to them. You know what I say to people when they say that? I say, well, have you talked to them first? Have you visited with them? Have you followed Matthew 18? It's not the pastor's job. And we do this we do this, now it's not just, now this is the point, I'm wanting to take the example of Nadab and Abihu and Hophni and Phinehas and compare it to us today. We do the exact same thing. We are unwilling to speak to people about their issues because we are afraid of crossing their wills. We're afraid that they'll be upset with us. We're afraid that they'll be mad at us. 
And that's when the church begins to grow more corrupt, more corrupt, and more corrupt. And then the same people who would not address the people about that sin are the ones that will say, boy, the church sure has fallen into all kinds of problems today, haven't they? They're the same ones that will criticize the church because they haven't done something. But, dear friends and brothers and sisters, you are the church. You are the church, and we are accountable to each other. Now, what I'm saying is not that we go on witch hunts. You understand? We're not becoming busybodies. But if we see open sin in the church, we need to speak to people regardless. We need to love the opinion of God more than the opinion of what they think about us. We're afraid of crossing people's wills. I was at the grocery store the other day, and I heard this mother speaking to her son who was about seven or eight years old. And she was getting frustrated, visibly, physically frustrated with this boy because he could not decide what the family was going to have for dinner that day. She's like, well, what are we going to have? You need to decide. I don't know if she didn't have a husband or what. But the boy was like, I don't know. I don't care. Why is a child deciding the family dinner today? This is the problem, friends. We can't even say no to our children. We cannot even confront our children about those things which are wrong. So how in the world are we going to go and confront those in the church? Let's continue this quote here. Without weighing the terrible consequences that would flow his course, he indulged in his children in whatever they desired and neglected the work of fitting them for the service of God and the duties of life. God had said of Abraham, I know him that he will keep my commands and he will teach his children to do justice. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But Eli allowed his children to control him. The father became subject to his children. The curse of transgression was apparent in the corruption of evil that marked the course of his sons. They had no proper appreciation for the character of God or the sacredness of his law. His service to them was to them a common thing. From childhood, they had been accustomed to the sanctuary and its service. But instead of becoming more reverent, they had lost all sense of its holiness and significance. How sad. The father had not corrected the want of reverence for his authority, had not checked their disrespect for the solemn services of the sanctuary, and when they reached manhood, they were full of the deadly fruits of skepticism and rebellion. The sons of Eli, instead of realizing the solemnity of the symbolic service, only thought now how they can make it a means of self-indulgence. I can go to church to figure out how I can meet my own fleshly needs and desires and passions. This irreverence on the part of the priest soon robbed the servants of its holy and solemn significance, and the people abhorred the offering of the Lord. The great anti-typical sacrifice to which they looked forward to was no longer recognized, wherefore the sin of the young men became very great before the Lord. So when the people forgot the anti-typical sacrifice, they forgot about who? They forgot about Jesus. And God would have no more of it. And he brought it to them. Now let me read you one more paragraph from this, and this is where we find ourselves today. There is no greater curse upon households than to allow the youth to have their own way. When parents regard every wish of their children and indulge them in what they know is not for their good, the children soon lose all respect for their parents, all regard for the authority of God or man, and are led captive to the will of Satan. The influence of an ill-regulated family is widespread and disastrous to all society. It accumulates in a tide of evil that affects families, communities, and governments. Is that not where, you tell me, is that not where our society is today and where our church is on a very rapid trainly, 
rapid train leaving. It's on a, ra- on a train very rapidly heading. What do you think this morning? We have not said no to our children because they have not understood the passions of the flesh and it has led to disaster in society. And this is what we see happening in the church today. People are blind and they can't even discern right from wrong, good from evil, because it is br- they have not been restraining the passions of the flesh And that's where we're at today. So our generation today says, do whatever thou wilt. Let the passions of your flesh flourish. Let them run wildly. Do whatever you desire. And you know, friends, people watch these kids growing up and and, and they say, oh, well, you know, they'll grow out of it. Or they think it's cute and they'll say, well, you know, that's cute when they're two, but when they're five, you know, they'll grow out of it. But the only thing that grows is the sin rooted in their hearts. The only thing that grows are the passions of the flesh. And the older they get, the greater their passions become and the greater sin they indulge in. And you're not going to teach them when they're older to do it, to do what is right. And it leads to disaster. And it leads today to us embracing all kinds of wickedness, transgenderism, homosexuality, and all these things. Now, if you have a relative that is one of those things. I'm very sympathetic towards the people. I love those people. But it is a choice, just like anything else is a choice, just like alcohol is a choice. And I don't think homosexuality is any greater sin than any other, but it is a sin, just like you and I sin. And those people need to be loved, and they need to be nurtured, and they need to be brought to Jesus. Amen? They need to be, but they need, all of our hearts need to be changed, no matter who we are. Someone says it doesn't, once said, it doesn't matter how you were born, because you can't be born again. Amen? <laughs> You can't be born again. Our generation today wants to say that we can just tolerate sin, and toleration of sin is what love is. That's what people will say today. What do you think? Do you agree with that statement? Do you agree that society says that? But do you don't agree that it's true? Now listen to this. Even within our own church, there is a massive movement today for people to say We just need to love, and we just need to accept, and we just need to not worry about what people are doing, and we don't need to correct people. We just need to be kind to them, and and et cetera, et cetera. And and let me just say this. Now, there's a certain camp that will say those things, and then there's a certain camp that says, no, that's not right, and they actually will say to them that this is not theologically correct, right? They will say that. And I would agree with that, except I would take it a step further for you, that this type of love, it is not just a theological error. Notice this statement from Great Controversy. Watch. It is true that spiritualism... Let me just skip this slide because it's, uh, it's um, for sake of time, but I'm going to slip this sky, slide. I'm going to go to the next one. She talks about spiritualism, okay? She says what spiritual, how spiritualism has progressed, okay? And notice this, this next slide. She's describing spiritualism here. Love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God, but it is degraded to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil. Now, does that sound like what people say? Just love people, doesn't matter what they do. God's justice, his renunciation of sin, the requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight. The people are taught regarding the Decalogue as a dead letter. Pleasing, bewitching fables, captivating the senses and lead men 
to reject the Bible as the foundation of their faith, Christ is as verily denied as before, but Satan has so blinded the eyes of the people that deception is not discerned. So listen, Ellen White doesn't just say that this type of tolerance is not, it's not only not love and it's not only doctrinal error, but it's actually what? It's actually spiritualism. And we are being swept away into Babylon by it. Now what about those who say, well, let's just love people and not address their sins? Notice the statement right here. This goes back to patriarchs and prophets. The Lord would teach His people to acknowledge the justice of His corrections that others may fear. The divine rebuke is upon the false sympathy for the sinner which endeavors to excuse his sin. It is the effectual effect of sin to deaden the moral perceptions so that the wrongdoer does not realize the enormity of transgression. That's why God sends people to them to pull them out. So uh, to the, uh, it deadens his perceptions so that the wrongdoer does not realize the enormity of his transgression. Without the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, he remains in partial blindness to his sin. Now listen to this, friends. It is the duty of Christ's servants to show these erring ones their peril. Those who destroy the effect of the warning, listen, by blinding the eyes of sinners to the real character of the results of sin, often flatter themselves that they thus give evidence of their charity, which is their love. Their what? Their love. They say, oh, I love this person. We just need to love them, but never address their sin. And they say that's what love is, just accepting them as they are and just taking them in. If they want to continue in that sin, well, you know, God will convict them. No, God says it's our duty to, by the grace of God and the movement of the Holy Spirit, to turn them away from that. Are you with me? Yes or no? And so people will often boast and say, well, we love people more than you do, more than your camp, because we're accepting them in their sin. But notice this. The, the quote continues. Watch this. Put it back up there. They, they, they show it as an evidence of their charity, but they are working directly to oppose and hinder the work of God's Holy Spirit. They are lulling the sinner to rest on the brink of destruction. They are making themselves partakers of his guilt and incurring a fearful responsibility for his impenitence. Many, many have gone down to ruin as a result of this false and deceptive sympathy. What do you say, church? Think about that for just a minute. It is not okay to just accept the people and their sin. Now, it may not be in that moment, the moment you meet them. You may have to, just like God, you may forbear for a little bit, you understand, because of where they are. We're sensitive to where they are. We're compassionate to where they are. But God will impress the right time to speak to that person. It may not always be right away, you understand. We have to build that relationship. We have to love them. We have to accept them regardless of their sin. You understand? We have to accept them. Are you with me, yes or no? But at the right time, the right place, and the right way, we must speak to that issue. Yes or no? And God will open the way if we pray and if we're asking the Holy Spirit to do it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I, I, we don't have time to go there now. Our time is almost finished. But in 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about love, doesn't it? Love is kind. Love is patient. But there's one little phrase in that chapter that says, love does not rejoice in iniquity or in sin. 
It does not rejoice. It is patient. It is kind. It is compassionate. But that doesn't mean that it tolerates iniquity. It means that it turns people away from it. How many of you can say amen this morning? Galatians chapter 5 says the first thing. Same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 2 talks about, let's just go there real quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think we can, we can do this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, the Bible tells us in verse, how do I deal with this? How do I, how do I handle this? First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be what? Gentle to all, able to teach patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. How are we to approach people? In what? Humility and gentleness and kindness, but drawing them away from that sin. And the only thing that would entice them to leave that sin will not be your words, but pointing them to the Almighty Savior whose love for them will surround them and satisfy their hearts and begin to pull them out of that sin. Can you say amen? How do we approach those who are older than us? 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 tells us real quickly. 1 Timothy chapter uh, 5, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1 and 2. Do not exhort or rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a what? As a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. With all purity. And so Paul, uh, Peter, yeah, Paul tells us here how we should approach those who are older than us and younger than us as fathers, as sons, as mothers, and as daughters with kindness, with goodness, but with truth, amen? But with the truth as well. I want to remind you today that the Bible tells us, I read this quote yesterday, the Lord never blesses him who criticizes and accuses his brethren, for this is Satan's work. And there have been those in the church today who have been dissatisfied with the votes of the world church. And there has been criticism even to the point of calling the general conference, uh, you know, like Nazism and all these kind of things, restrictive and, and binding and, 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 and dictatorial and kingly. And let me tell you what, friends, that kind of language does not fly with the Lord. You understand? Whether you don't like your pastor, you don't like your president, or you don't like your head elder, it doesn't really matter. We are not called to criticize and attack others, you understand. We are called to gently exhort them. And, and I would say this, friends, that, that we should not be speaking against one another. It doesn't, we can disagree with people, but we can still love them, amen? And we can love them while still disagreeing with them. And we cannot be attacking one another. It is not right. It is not. I am very thankful for the leadership of the General Conference and Elder Ted Wilson. How many of you are thankful for that today? I'm very thankful for him. It's very powerful what the Lord is doing with the revival and reformation, friends. And listen, when the world body of the church votes an action, when it votes it, if you're not going to submit yourselves to that vote, then what vote are you going to submit yourselves to? You become kingly because you want to do what you want to do regardless of what the world should. Ted Wilson did not arbitrarily make the decisions that he makes that are made at the general conference. Do you understand that? No matter what they are, he does not arbitrarily do that, but the world body votes it. Are you thankful today for the leadership of God in his church? Amen?
James chapter 5, our last text, tells us. I have it right on the screen there. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Dear friends, that is true love. Self-denying, self-sacrificing for the sake of another's salvation. That is what true love is. That is what Jesus did for us. That is what he calls us to do for each other. How many of you today want to be faithful to God and faithful to each other in true love? Amen? You want to say, Lord Jesus, I want to be faithful in everything, even seeking my brother who may be going down a path that's not right. Do you want that today in your life? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we're thankful for the truth of what you have spoken to us today. We want to have true love in our lives. We want to have true love in our hearts, not just for you, but for our fellow men, even if it means, Lord, uh, struggling with how to speak to them, Lord, but that we, we, we will still speak. We will still speak the truth in love. So, Lord, draw us close to you, we pray, and close to our brethren. We ask this in Jesus' sweet name. Let all God's people say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.